Let's get started. So uh, we're going to start. We're running a little late. And renunciation is a good idea. Great. So, um, so uh, it feels at this, this juncture, it'd be good of the day to have you talking among each other again. You've been listening to the morning quite a bit, and so now we want to have some, some more personal contact and personal involvement, direct contact with the topic. And then, uh, and then Christina will do a presentation in her session. And, um, and so the topic is, um, you, know, it's, it's a, you know, as Jennifer pointed out this morning, there's a whole, you know, lots of territories, lots of areas of this topic that we're talking about. One of them is memorial services, funerals. And uh, chaplains sometimes are expected to do it, sometimes impromptu. Sometimes in jails and prisons, people who go and do meditation groups uh, someone has died in the group and, um, and you show up the next time and something's needed to happen besides just continue with the program and so something like memorial service happens you know, so, so. so there's all kinds of ways in which this is done um, and so uh, we would like you to have a conversation in a small groups about in your life experience so far of memorial services, funerals what were the elements that worked and didn't work for you? So it's really personal. What worked for you and didn't work for you, uh, didn't work for you and those that you attended. And, uh, and so uh, have that conversation in groups of three. And I think it's not going to be uh, one or two groups of four, but the way we're going to fi- figure out those groups of four is the system where you just walk towards me if you don't find a group of three, and I'll help you connect with, with a, uh, a group of three and make a group of four. So, okay? So why don't you... Or sp- uh, roam around and find new people, people you haven't talked to before. And so um, let's just take a very short few minutes, maybe with uh, no more than four words. What was that like? So we just uh, do it this way because we don't want to. S- yeah. One four, to four words? Yeah, something like that. Illuminating, educational, inspiring, and healing. <laughs> wow. I think you knew that was coming. <laughs> um, thought-provoking. Some overlap between people. It was a good share. Community building. Sad. Mm. Diverse. Heartwarming. Uh, reassuring and companioning. Com- companionship. Poignant. Uh, the ocean as a receiving space. Mm. Uh, I'd say it was validating and inspiring and um, enjoyable. Yeah, I thought it was kind of fun. Um, yeah, just some really great stories. Celebrating loss. It's connecting. Reassuring. Uh, 
pulsation, flowing, stopping, breathing. Interesting and reassuring. Nostalgic memories, somber, smiles. Great, thank you very much. To everyone. Oh, Nadine. very interesting and very reassuring it uh, I learned great thank you so there are infinite variations of how memorial services can be done they can go from being completely impromptu with no preparation at all to lots and lots and lots of preparation and uh, a chaplain might fall find themselves in any of those circumstances and and uh, trying to accommodate the wishes of family or friends and the range of what they expect in a memorial service could be from quiet stoicism to wild celebration to expressions of great rage to great sadness to you know it's it's, it's, it's anything it's, you don't you know and so to have a sense of the range and the ways of doing it and makes you available to support people where they're at. And so you'll never learn enough about memorial services to come, you know, beforehand, but you can certainly ask people and find out and improvise as you go along. <clears throat> but you can also do some preparation and you might ask around for, or find books and stuff and different examples of different memorial services, how they're done and, and start building up a little bit of a repertoire of ideas and elements. And I think one of the one of the things on the website will be an article I wrote on Theravadan approaches to death and dying, which has some elements of a Theravadan memorial services, and there are others that uh, you know there's all kinds. So uh, this is something for you to educate yourself with, and as it seems appropriate, and the different roles that you might have. So thank you. All right. Well. I, I sense a kind of heaviness about the topic as much as we have been working with it and lifting it up and kind of t- molding the clay of it throughout the day. There's still something about directly facing um, death and dying that uh, you know, brings, brings us into our bodies because that's the part that it most obviously dies, um, but also uh, calls up for us our experiences of confronting change and loss. And the biggest change and loss most of us will experience is around death. So um, what more do we want to do in working with this delightful topic? The first thing I would ask you to do is really honestly check in with your body and see where you're kind of holding on and where things may be flowing. Just kind of take a a minute to to feel that and uh, just be aware.
So, um, as you feel that in your heart space or your gut, or you feel your jaw kind of tight, that's where I tend to tighten up. Um, shoulders kind of tend to come over and be protective of my heart space. And some of that, I know, has to do with the fact that when I'm in um, a stretch of directly confronting the losses in my own life, it brings up pieces of other losses in the past for me and the grief, the response to that loss. And that's what grief is. It's the response to loss. And there are so many losses we have. Um, And I think my hopes for this hour we have together is that you grow in your capacity to be able to explain what grief is in some very simple language, that you are able to um, make a little list, three or four or five things that might be useful in working with grief in order to relieve its pain, because it's pain painful, and assist with healthy reflection and uh, what I call moving through, moving through uh, Letting go feels a little effortful for me, and grief is very unmanageable. It has to sort of run its course, and that's a healthy thing. And then also to to really grow in your resolve to identify and be present to your own losses as they happen every single day. Uh, and we won't have time for this here, I don't think, but I do want to invite you at the end of this process to craft a practice plan for attending to uh, the griefs that are the most, the losses that are the most present for you over a calendar year. You know, we're almost to January, um, and I'll say a little bit more about that when we get to that part of what we're doing. But this is about inviting grief in a little bit more, inviting loss a little bit closer, so that you become more and more fluid with working with it in your own life so that when the phone calls or the, the, there's some call to attend to someone who's just had a loss or who's just had a, a diagnosis that, that will lead to death soon or there's some other kind of rupture, um, there's been a violent assault, there's uh, been a divorce that was unexpected, that you're like, ah, grief, here we are. Welcome, old friend, we're here. We're here together again. Um, and that there's ease in your mind, in your heart, in your body, at least a little bit along with that, all right, let's put on our armor and get going, or whatever it is that you do to kind of get up for for moving into that space. Uh, But part of it really, ah, grief, old friend, come on in. So we've talked a lot, and I know many of you have done in-depth training in programs around death and dying. So if this is, you know, to the extent that there's a repetition or whatever, and you have, or you have something to add, please feel free. You know, we're a learning community together, and this is the most, besides birth, perhaps the most universal of experiences, as is death and loss. But I do want to emphasize that it, it's not only death of a, of a human being that we're talking about. Some of the most significant deaths I've attended to with, with colleagues um, and that often are in some ways easier for people to confront so they're, m- they're more present to them, their feelings about it, loss of a pet. Oh my gosh, you lose a beloved dog, a beloved cat. 
you know, when my my granddaughter, who's ten, lost her hamster, she was inconsolable. You know, it's that, that experience of this this being was here, this being is no longer here, and what does that mean? And how do I feel? And how do I go on? Um, and then there are those losses that we don't really have a lot of. Um, we don't talk with they're even more hidden than death, and that would be a divorce, um, estrangement among family members where there's been some kind of an abrupt uh, division. Um, I've worked with quite a few people over the last year, given the political divide we're experiencing in the country, where people feel like they've lost their close relationship with their siblings uh, because they're in very different political camps. And I think you abortion. Abortion, Yes. Yes, pregnancy, losses of all kinds, uh, miscarriages, abortions, uh, stillbirths. Oh my gosh, huge. I don't think I've yet shared with this group, um, but my grandmother, when she was 80, she lost twins at five months, and she still talked about them. In, in her last days, she talked about those boys that she lost. And her sadness and her feelings, they, they were palpable. So, um, and then the complexity when there has been an abortion, whatever led to it, however one resolves with that, how people don't want to talk about it, um, it's complex. Thank you. It's just along the same line of not wanting to talk about like, body parts, like when I had surgery. <sighs> yes, that makes great sense to me. Um, I had a very odd um, postpartum um, depression with my second child with a sense of having the pregnancy having ended. And here I have this beautiful child. I mean, that's the point of the pregnancy. But the pregnancy and the state of being full of life and being one with a child, and then there's this very challenging, colicky little being. <laughs> I was much more peaceful before and then f- very ashamed about that. Because it, it's not something you talk about. Well, wait, you're moving toward this greater thing. And yet there's this, there was a very real sense of, of loss, physical bodily loss. Um, so many, many kinds of loss. And that relates to identity, too. As we go through life and our identity changes, or as the way others understand us changes, and the way they, that our relationships work because of that, that's huge. I know after um, the divorce from that I experienced in midlife, after a long marriage, um, that identity change was profound, profound. And uh, there was a sense of loss for myself, and also a sense of loss of a whole community of friends. Um, Loss of status and roles or social standing as you move from, uh, for example, being an affluent couple to being very poor following a, a breakup, or as you move from working and then being retired, you know, that there's a real change often in your sense of being empowered in the world. And that's, that, those are losses we do talk about and we do think we honor, but I'll tell you, your friends get tired of hearing about it. You know, it's it's your own loss, and you have to kind of take it to the right places to deal with it. Um, and loss of belonging to groups of all kinds. Uh, I, I've had a very 
kind of volatile evolution in my spiritual life. And, you know, there's something that was pretty wonderful about being part of a huge, gigantic church like I was with the Roman Catholic Church. And then discovering all of its <laughs> hidden sins, including, you know, the colonization of, of the people I come from and, and the enslavement of those people and the genocide of those people. And thinking, oh, this is this is really complicated. I, how can I be a part of this group when they're also the... So you get the point. But one of the things that happens with death, I think, that we don't always talk about either and where chaplains can be very helpful is the loss of meaning or, and even a loss of faith that often happens when people have a death. I didn't expect this. I My child died before me. Or um, my, I didn't even know my son was in a gang and, and here he's been shot and what is this? How can God let this happen? Um, I, you know, I'm so angry with God. I don't believe in God. I have no meaning left in my life. All of the things that come out when grief, when there's that rupture. So there is that first phase of grief, that rupture where you're just dealing with it in a very raw form. And it, 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 it can seem and look, and we've probably all been there, it can look very crazy. When someone has a child with a disability, the child they were expecting and dreaming to have Yes. Dies. Yes. Are there other losses that people would like to name that would kind of pull into the mix that are maybe on your mind as we've been working with this today? I need to, yes. Yeah. Uh, just friendship losses and uh, community losses. You know, yeah, lost my spiritual community this year. Oh, that's so painful. Yeah been there several times and it's huge you had something Amanda oh my gosh when I dropped my oldest daughter off at college and we were in the car driving back and she'd given me a tape she'd made a tape because she knew she knew this was going to be big and I put the tape in and I was sobbing so hard I had to have my husband pull over to the side of the road so I, I, I it was like I was I'll say it. It's like I was vomiting my soul. Yeah, I just, that time in life was done. It was done. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Everything, all the life. And there is a kind of uh, human instinct for, to the good to hold, to hold the, to hold a, um, contain, to, to create a, a, um, some kind of a container for those who have lost everything. And, it, and that's something that happens in the hospital. That's something that the chaplain doesn't do by themselves, but they can do with the staff, they can do with the family, is attend to that. Um, because there is such a dis- sense of dissolution and dissociation often that happens in, especially when a whole community has been leveled. You know, and we're not even getting to the war that there is in the world and the violence in general that um, 
we're all interconnected to with in so many ways. So many ways. When children are removed from the home, when there's been uh, abuse of some sort, it's, it's, oh, yeah, that stain on our collective. Alan, um, suicide. suicide. Yeah, to get this far into the day and not have yet said that word, just like rape and sexual assault, abortion, yeah, the hidden things. We're talking a lot about people in prison, but also their family members and friends and communities who are on the outside. It's a huge loss. And the loss uh, of potential life uh, that's just lost and, and, and has to shift to living in that much more confined and oppressive place. Oh, my gosh. So we could just, you know, make a really big mural of all these losses, and Cater wants to add something even more. <laughs> well, birth, you touch on the thing, birth is a, is a death, is a loss. And when birth doesn't go the way we expect or want it to, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but also tying in, I actually work with birth trauma in adults. It's something we don't recognize. Mm-hmm. The birth is very often it's unresolved pre-verbal. for the child or the parent. And that can linger in relationships. Months, years, decades. I had that very experience with my own mother, who was 16 when she got pregnant with me. And there was always just this kind of odd estrangement that we had between us until I dealt with my sense of birth trauma. And it was a very prolonged, traumatic birth. She had to be alone. It was the first time in her life she had been not with someone she knew. And it was the 1950s, ugh, I'm so old, with the ether and the nurse telling her to get it together and to stop crying. And it, it was so traumatic for her. And she was 16. That's a child. She's not even a woman yet. Um, and so I so completely can underscore the yeah, reality the of that. We can, we can bring consciousness to it. It's just to recognize that because the birth is past, it's not necessarily over mm-hmm. for the mother or the child. And so to, you know, just to hold space for that. Which kind of brings in that whole question of a kind of a PTSD sort of frozen moment that has such an impact on the lives of those who've had an experience of whatever kind that creates trauma because we carry that somatically in our bodies and the beauty of the practice of sitting on the cushion going deep into retreat of working over years in this sort of glacial way usually of bringing this to consciousness and watching it come and watching it go is is a piece of how we work with with that grief for ourselves um all right. So many forms expresses itself in many ways. Uh, we've talked about that immediate shock and confusion can be either very extravagant feeling or very numb and emotionally flat and dissociative feeling. Um, often there's great relief. You know, if you've vigiled for a long time at the bedside of someone who's dying or they've been dying in inches chronically over years and years, there's often a huge relief. release of energy that feels like a liberation for them and a liberation for family and um, depending on where you're coming from people can 
be afraid to acknowledge that, but it, that can be real too. Anger, blame, this kind of limitless sadness. Uh, and then guilt, guilt and shame, survivor's guilt. There's a lot of that, even with natural deaths. So just as Jennifer said, you walk into the room, you've got your kind of kit in your, in your pocket, and you've got your radar open. I don't, I don't know that anybody can be extremely ill in the hospital or be in a place kind of between life and death and not have some kind of a grief resurface. So chances are you'll, you'll hear about something. So grief cycles through a variety of states. You know, you've, you've heard the, the litany, and I actually think there is some value to the um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross list of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. It really is, the, uh, those elements do tend to be present in one's journey of grief. Um, but they don't come up in any order, as many experts will say, and they they come up again and again. That's the other. Thing. They also come up depending on what kind of personality we are, what 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 our particular approach to loss and change is. Anyway, mine is my immediate response usually is anger. That's usually the first thing that comes to me. That's how I'm wired. That's how I'm conditioned. That's who knows where that in prior lifetimes that came in for me. But um, the powerlessness that happens with that change. That's my kind of first. Then I kind of go back into a denial and get to the bargaining, the depressions later. Um, And acceptance is kind of uh, percussive here and there, a little bit. Um, And we all have our pattern. And it's good to kind of learn your pattern. Something that's important as a chaplain is to learn when someone's stuck in unremitting complex grief. So when one grief is linked to another and you practically can picture a little necklace of skulls around someone's neck and and they talk about every single loss they've had or they tell you about a loss and it's as if it just happened yesterday and, and you just, something in you knows this is, there's something kind of a little stuck there that's really impeding their life, may even be connected to how, what what they're ill with now, whatever. And so learning to refer about that, to act on that, um, you know, to investigate appropriately in the moment, but there's also um, a caution about really opening up a complex grief response with someone. Often the better uh, part of valor is to let a nurse know or a social worker or whatever. But uh, when there is that complex grief, you know, wow, this is just really big and, and I'm feeling really overwhelmed. You know, at the beginning of working as a chaplain, almost everything's overwhelming, but pretty quickly you begin to say, no, this is more than usual. Everybody's got something, but this feels big. And there are lots of good materials on what the symptoms of complex grief are, but, you know, a a rumination that doesn't seem open, that isn't listening as well as speaking, uh, where you can't turn the conversation in any other direction, extreme focus on reminders, you know, always reminded of... uh, that Dickensian character who sat with the wedding cake, you know, for 50 years. Was it in Charles Dickens? Mrs. McComber, and still wore her wedding dress because she was stood up at the altar. Uh, when you have that kind of that kind of an image coming in, you're just like, wow, this is really old and nothing's changed. Um, anyway, you, you can look into more of those kinds of symptoms, but it, it, that can happen, in, and it's more common than you'd think. Because not everybody has the resources they need to move through it. And a lot of folks just are unwilling to 
go to the counselor. It may be culturally inappropriate. Go to a grief group. May may not have the means. They may not have the transportation. There are lots of reasons, but they can get stuck. So that's one kind of complex grief. Another kind is you could be talking to someone and all of a sudden something opens up in you that's not finished and you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed or um, unequal to the moment and so forth. So as, a, as the caregiver, what do you do with that? Kind of stop, make a decision. Do I go forward with this conversation? Do I bring it to a close? But I will take care of myself, meaning when it is finished, you will um, make a plan to go speak to someone or do something for yourself around that. And if you don't know what it is, because sometimes that can happen and you're not sure what it is, that you will look into it. This is part of undertaking the mantle of the work. Um, And you do, in a certain sense, have to come to a decision if you will be doing this in the long term of renouncing denial. You know, announcing, I set a denial aside because I know from my own well-being and the well-being of others, I need to be willing to go into this. Um, Otherwise, you'll burn out. So how long is is enough time to grieve? I think our losses change us and we're never, we never go back to where we were. Um, and, and, but I think that there are some practices that help us to lighten, as um, Dave was saying, lighten the grief. And having community is a big part of it. So what is your community of, of uh, explorers with you? You know, we've talked about it a little bit before, but do you, do you have a place where you can process this kind of information? A lot of people, when they're in chaplaincy training, really appreciate and enjoy and benefit from the group, but when they leave the training, they have no group. And the group process is a little different than a therapist, which is always good to have, too, on call, so to speak, if you're not going all the time. But someone you can go to, your teacher, um, and But the process group, something happens in the dynamic of a group where there's a range of intimacies and connections and likenesses and differences that really can help move things through even faster and even more completely than in some of those other settings. So be thinking about that as you work with your own grief and um, decide, you know, that you're, you're going to move forward with this work. Usually, after, you know, there's kind of that common sense wisdom that a a year, at the end of a year, you'll probably be in somewhat better shape than you were that first year where every single day it's, you're encountering um, memories and experiences in the past with, with the person or the situation or whatever it is that you've lost. And once you've been through the cycle once, coming up to the second Christmas Actually, you know, if you were dissociative the whole first year, the second Christmas might be worse. But it'll be different. You're moving. You're moving through. And it's like, ah, yes, grief. I remember. We're here again. No wonder. Um, And when you're dealing with people and talking with them and listening to them for for how fresh or whatever their grief is, it can be helpful to know the, the time frame that you're working with. But for ourselves, um, what are some of the practices that we can work with 
to process or attend to our grief. And I'm talking about, for ourselves, not so much the immediate aftermath of when something happens. That's crisis, and you have your mode of working with crisis and your family way of working with crisis and, you know, your consultants, your priest, your therapist, whatever, your best friends, your family. But when, after that, everybody goes home, you know, eventually everybody goes home and it's pretty fast. I'm always kind of amazed. It's pretty fast. Uh, Then what? So, I really think in in doing this work that there is a regular check-in in our time on the cushion when we should be asking ourselves, so, hmm, what what's alive for me today around loss? You know, what's coming up for me? I know that uh, I was in Santa Cruz uh, doing a seminar last week, last week and uh, I drove by Los Gatos, and my oldest daughter, who um, now lives in Albuquerque, she and her husband lived here for four years when he did his residency at, um, at, at the university at Stanford. And, and then they moved. He got his, a job back where he lives, where he grew up, where he was born, 19 generations in New Mexico. They went back. It was planned. We expected it. Oh, my gosh, I was so sad. Um, and any event, and driving by it again, and driving by those trees and whatever, it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm feeling that. I'm really feeling that. And I have a great relationship with my daughter. We're going to be together next week. I mean, it's not like I'm not in the present, but that, that the way the wonderful years where we were up there in the trees and, you know, we had picnics and talks and walks and whatever. It was a very special time, and the time's over. And it just kind of ran into it again. It's like, ah, there we are, ah, grief, back in the room. Um, I think in the first year after a big loss, being in a grief group is really good. And we can be a little bit complacent as uh, spiritual caregivers that, oh, we know what they're going to say, we know what they're going to do, and eh, I don't really have time for that, and, and whatever. But I would say that that can be a very lovely way to sort of lay down your burden, lay down your expertise, and just be a member. Um, journaling. Not every bit journaling doesn't work for everyone, but mm-hmm, it can be very helpful. And journaling in a way that's therapeutic and learning how to do that is really helpful. Using somatic approaches. This is one of my favorites. And maybe as I get older and I get less kind of mental, uh, I think there's something super lovely about finding a body worker that you like and work or working with dance or working uh, without being so directly mentally engaged with the, the issue that can be super helpful. And then finally, um, crafting a plan of your own about how you will ritually attend to and invite grief into your life in the next bit. So this is what I'm going to suggest is to take a calendar, you know, find a, find, not your phone, find a real hands-on calendar. You know, buy a calendar. Go to Barnes & Noble. Pick one out on Amazon. Get a calendar, 12-month calendar. And um, we'll work in a little bit in um, actually sitting with uh, what grief is alive in us today and what uh, two or three losses are coming up that we think might be... Uh, 
the ones that we'd like to sit with us in our room when grief comes into the room. And then fill your calendar out for the year. So, for example, um, let's say I'm dealing with what seems to be up for me today with my daughter Dolores as she moves through her life. She just turned 40. Ah, maybe that's part of what's going on. Anyway, so in January, what would be the connections I might have with with her and that I would put down or that when she was growing up were important? Um, Nothing comes to mind immediately, although her husband, who she has now, has a birthday in January, so that's one thing. Uh, what would come up in February? It might be that she started school. She was a, a very bright little thing, and she started her preschool in the middle of the year. And so that was the month she started, and I remember that. I remember taking her to school. So, and put those dates in your calendar for the for the changes or losses that you're dealing with. Obviously, with the death, it's very easy. You can put the person's birthday, their death day, um, special memories you have about times you spent together, and... Um, as those days come up, there are lots of things you can do with that. First of all, you're aware of it. You can take it with you to your time on the cushion. You can, if you have a sacred space in your house uh, or your living space or your workspace, you can have a, a picture of them. And you can have that picture with you all year, too. You know, you can get a special picture just for this purpose. You might put a flower. You might do something that reminds you of them, that relates to who they are and who you were. Um, you might share more about them with others, you know? And you might even tell some of the people who are important to you in your life, I'm doing this. It's kind of funky, but it's part of my training. And I'm trying to get more comfortable with how this works. And then from time to time, talk to your partner, your dialect partner, your small group people about it. And then as you're doing, as you're caring for others, you are carrying this own dimension of your own grief with you. And... There's something about attending to your grief that will make you more available and a little softer with others around theirs. And uh, being aware of that, and maybe even just noting that on your calendar, it's not a bad idea. There are lots of other creative ways you can work with that. Um, I bet the artists within each of you have some ideas about that. Meditators within each of you. Any thoughts? Yes. So you're asking us to find a day every month? Not exactly. What I'm saying is get a calendar Mm -hmm. and whatever your loss might be, note the dates on that calendar that were important to you and your relationship with that person, with that. It's probably going to be a person who's died in your life. Let's think of it that way. Yeah. And you know, and then when that day comes, it's up to you what fits. Do you just note it? You know, on that day, oh, there it is. You know, you have that calendar in a place you look at it. And um, you bring them into your meditation, perhaps. Uh, it depends on what's going to fit for you and what's alive for you. But you make it tangible. Make it a little bit more tangible that they were here and now they're gone and how do I feel about it? And given how I feel about it, is there something more that I need or want to do to have that grief move through me, that sense of loss? It may be very joyful. Um, you may you know, remember the, the, on their birthday, the best birthday the two of you ever spent together. It doesn't 
all have to be sad. It's about making it tangible. So thank you for asking that question because that's important. It's not about wallowing in um, a sense of what's no longer here in a nostalgic way. It's about helping the fact of that and the energy of that move through you, move through your body mind in a way that keeps you aware that loss is all around us, changes all around us, and there will be a time when we're the one uh, who others are talking about and writing about and lamenting our passing and celebrating our life. And if we're going to be accompanying others on their journey, how do we in a culture where um, death and dying, change and loss are minimized and hidden, how do we make it a little bit more high profile for ourselves? Yes, I actually have done that too. Yeah, something that the person really loved or that you care about and in their name. They have, many hospitals have an um, annual service around the holidays or at some point in the year where usually, I know for my hospital it was the holidays where they, were, they had a tree and you could buy an angel for that tree and have the name of the person you were thinking of or that you love put on that you lost it was nice and I remember doing that for my mother giving that one of those ornaments to my mother for my sister who had died and it was very meaningful to her and kind of reconnected us in a certain way thank you all right so we're going to go just a little bit deeper and then we're going to be done with this part unless people have questions or concerns or worries. I would just invite us all to kind of settle just in your seat. We'll do a little bit of a five-minute meditation. I'm going to ask you to uh, let come to your mind the loss that's on your mind today most uh, prominently that you would be willing to share with two others in a small group. So not something that's so tender that you would rather not be exploring that here, but a sense of, yeah, something that's just come up as we've been sitting with grief in the room, contemplating all that goes on as we move toward death and through it and back. Who or what you might have lost? And we'll just be in silence for a few minutes and let that come.
So again, I would ask you to just break into groups of three. Um, name the loss, take turns. Uh, say what you think about why you think it's coming up now, anything else that seems important. And uh, if you have a sense of it, something that comes to you that um, suggests itself about how you might honor or attend to that freshness around the loss um, in the next season before the end of the year. Sound okay? Okay. That means what, threes in two groups of four? ways and right okay so first of all just kind of let's just do a full stretch feel kind of the energy flow out your fingertips out your toes back through your head all the way through your chakras all the way down to the ground move see where you're holding where you're feeling really kind of loose shake 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 you know i i have a, an african shaman gave me a couple of rattles that oh i use all the time to kind of just sh- shake out the energy because sometimes it's just nice not to have it be in a flow it just kind of blah 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 yeah 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 there we go yeah all right good So if you had to fill out a piece of paper that said, this is where I hold my grief in my body, what would you say? Front. Front. Tummy. Throat. Lungs. Right there. Yeah, lungs are often affiliated with grief. But, you know, it depends where it is and how you hold it. Yeah, I, 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 I throat, solar plexus. I can actually get so frozen that you can't even feel it with unprocessed grief. Great. All right. So did anything come up that was surprising to you? This is, a, this is an old friend already. Uh-huh. The, uh, the variety of things, I mean, it, it was like all three of us had sort of really unexpected, to me anyway, unexpected stories. Hmm. It's like, oh, wow, never would have thought that. I never, you know, I was just like, yeah, you don't know what's going on in people's lives. Yeah, isn't that true? There's a wonderful little video that uh, the Mayo Clinic puts out that shows people walking through the hospital and it has a little cloud over their head and it says something about them. And there's this one fellow going up the escalator and it says, just got a, a back a, a test result that with a serious diagnosis. And they have another one going down the escalator saying, just got the test back with a good diagnosis. And, you know, they don't look that different and you wouldn't know if you didn't know. And the whole, everyone in the hospital, they show with that different situation. And you could just, that's us, that's everyone, you know. There are worlds that we're carrying that others certainly probably aren't aware of. And we may ourselves not even realize that's that pressing today. Yeah, great. All right. So how does it 
feel to think about actually inviting grief into your house? Feel to invite grief into the room, into your house, into where you live? How does that feel? Hmm. Like it's okay to have it there. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You've got it all kind of nice. And <laughs> here's here's your room. <laughs> and as long as that doesn't get up in the middle of the night and go eat your popsicles out of the refrigerator, you're in good shape. <laughs> Thank you. All right. All right. Well, this is just a taste, you know. And as Jennifer and I were talking in the in the break uh, while you were working, that that's right. It's like poking the bear, you know, or poking the dragon. You may have odd memories or strange dreams, or you may find yourself really testy with somebody or bursting into tears over the next week, because we really have activated some some places that you know have have uh, that deep, profound sense of loss and grief for us. And so, how that plays out for you will be different. And you know, just be open to it. Expect it. It's 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 okay. You know. Yeah. You've been through this before. So thank you for your willingness to make yourself available for this. And it is part of the practice of uh, growing those kind of elite muscles that a spiritual caregiver needs to have in order to provide the care that people need. Okay. Hooray! You can kind of go and move and continue with the process of letting go of the topic. <laughs> All right, thank you. Fifteen minutes? Okay.